Hello, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 52, uh, which is part of a which is a part two of a previous show. What's new in the world of biocompatibility for medical devices? Uh, so in December, we held a session on this topic, and it was wildly engaging with a lot of questions, uh, too many for us to answer that day. So this is round two. Uh, my name is Stephen Bernanke, Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to quickly introduce who we are, uh, both as a company and our panelists today. So RQM Plus is the largest international provider of regulatory quality and clinical consulting services for medical device and diagnostics manufacturers. Uh, and this is our RQM Plus live show, uh, which gives you access to our expert panelists to answer your questions about timely industry topics and challenges. Uh, please type any questions you have today in the questions area of the webinar interface and then click submit and we'll go through those. So without further ado, the first of today's panelists is Jay Cuddy, Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. He has a PhD and joined RQM Plus last year, coming from BSI, where he spent seven years in CE marking technical and clinical leadership roles with specific expertise in cardiovascular product development. Next up, we have Kevin Goh, Project Engineer. Kevin is a certified quality auditor. He has his RAC certification and came to RQM Plus from the FDA, where he worked as a policy advisor for CDRH Innovation in the Payer Communication Task Force, as well as being a TPLC lead reviewer in the Office of Orthopedic Devices. Uh, our third and final panelist is, and our first time on RQM Plus Live, is Lucy Delay, Senior Regulatory Specialist. Lucy has a PhD, and she has been our utmost biocompatibility expert for many submissions, uh, ranging from PMAs to 510Ks. Uh, she also has extensive experience with biological risk assessments and biocompatibility reports. Uh, last but not least is our moderator. This is very exciting. Like Lucy, a brand new face on RQM Plus Live, Parmeen Kai, Vice President of Business Development. Uh, so thanks very much for stepping in today, Parm, and you are free to get the conversation going. Go Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, and uh, welcome to everyone here who's who's chimed in today. So. We had an absolutely fantastic biocompatibility session on December last year, and we had a huge amount of questions that came through. And I think it's only fitting that we start with answering most of those questions that have come through. So the first question I have is, for the panelists is, have, have you had any unique or unexpected feedback from notified body or FDA? Have you seen any misinterpretation by the regulators? Yeah, I can kick this one off. So I've been, actually kind of surprised with some of the feedback we've received from FDA recently and we've been dealing with quite a few biocomp deficiencies and I guess one of the reasons why I'm surprised is surprised that for these files we've been going with relatively large test labs right who have like a lot of credibility with FDA who've done these tests so many times so like when we submit them we have pretty high confidence these labs know what they're doing the devices that we're testing are pretty standard and we're getting pushback on like some of the methodology that's kind of a little bit confusing. Like, so one of the examples we had recently was for our histology report, where we did low magnification, high magnification images. We marked all the landmarks, cellular structures, areas of interest, sent it to FDA, thinking it was like fine, results were fine. And they pushed back on like our standing method or like our images, like being like, oh, you, you need more high magnification images. I'm like, but we've never had this before. It's kind of concerning, like, why now we're getting pushback. And it's not just like this, we've been getting. I don't know, there seems to be like a discrepancy between like the large labs and what FDA is looking for, for some situations. Lucy, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I kind of have the same feeling. I had, uh, we had recently that company was submitted a file with tons of testing and FDA came back with questions on cytotoxicity. Uh, very, I feel like it's, 
I really look into details now. I'm, I, I've been spending time trying to justify why they uh, used an incubation time longer than 24 hours or why it's, and it's just cytotoxicity. And I feel like this test is so easy to justify when it doesn't pass that spending so much time on it, I just don't, I don't really get it. And I don't think they really look at the big picture, at least on FDA side and, and, and consider the totality of evidence to, for the biocompatibility. They are checking boxes. Yeah, you know, I have a similar example. There was a heart valve stored in formaldehyde, right? And no matter what you do, how much you rinse it, according to the physician's rinse, it pretty much will fail cytotoxicity, right? If it's stored in gluraldehyde, maybe, maybe not, depending on the rinse protocol, but formaldehyde almost always does. And uh, the FDA got really hung up on the fact that it failed cytotox. And Lucy, to your point about larger picture, look, there are a whole other bunch of tests. Like the cytotox is like a screening tool, really. And if you really understand how it's done, it's not surprising that something stored in formaldehyde fails that test. But then there's also the whole suite of chem characterization tests, right? Um, which tells you a lot, in fact, with a lot more sensitivity and specificity than a cytotox test. And to that point, sometimes the larger picture gets lost. Um, and this is just from my experience. Sometimes, you know, the reviewers are straight out of school. Um, Kevin, to your point about magnification, you know, what magnification, what kind of stains are used and all of that, it may be down to reviewer experience. I'm not saying it's only a fresh reviewer. I don't know who the reviewer was in this case. So multitude of factors come into play here. Um, and that's where hopefully the review process is an interactive one where the manufacturer can provide their justifications and rationales, but these kinds of things have been happening over time. Now, on the EU side, it's a slightly different story because the buildup is a little different. Uh, you know, you have, a, you have the MDR, a regulation of the magnitude of which industry has never seen to date, including the advent of the FDA back in 76. There, um, historically, TUVSUD has been a lot more incisive. Their levels of scrutiny were uh, considerably higher compared to, say, BSI or ADECRA. Uh, but all notified bodies have been have been actively hiring people with a lot of industry experience, with very specific experience in areas of clinical and biocompatibility. And overall, all notified bodies have started to significantly raise their game. It's no longer a high-level, you know, one-hour review of biocompatibility. They're getting into things. You will most likely get questions around AET. Uh, you know, they, they will want to understand the sensitivity of, of your equipment, the choice of your um, tests, the LOQ type of things that previously you wouldn't expect um, a majority of notified bodies, you know, except maybe say TubeSuit, but now uh, most of them are getting in on the game. So I wouldn't really say much misinterpretation, but I would say that the bar has been raised uh, because, you know, GSPR 10 calls for um, significant focus on chem characterization related items. And then you have Annex 2 6.1b second indent that actually asks for chem characterization regardless of device classification and so on. So there's a lot more focus on uh, biological safety evaluation as a whole in the EU side of things. Yeah. Yeah, I think recently actually we supported an audit for um, notified body 
and they actually brought in a biocomp expert, but it took like a month. It like almost like delayed our process. They said, we can't, we don't have this person on the right person now to review the data. Please what wait for a month. Was it? Uh, it was TUV. So hmm. they brought in their own. Yeah. So they waited basically a month for uh, them well, to bring in like a biocomp person to come in and review all our data. And that's they did not really various... surprising. It's it's not the, the time frame is not surprising. In fact, a month's really not bad because if you if you look at notified body reviewers' calendars, they're probably booked for months on end, especially given you know the May 2024 timeline, right? So everybody's calendars are booked. So reviewer availability yeah, definitely is an issue, and it's not surprising that they would bring in a biocomp expert. Most notified bodies are doing that, and the notified body world is a highly codified world, right? Suppose somebody is hired from industry but does not have the background looking at biocomp related stuff, they will never have the codes to review those aspects of the submission, right? You need to have had that that level of education and level of experience in industry before you start looking at these reviews. So it's not surprising. It's just like, you know, a clinical evaluation specialist looks at the CER and associated things. It's the same thing on the biological evaluation side. So you can expect more and more experts to be recruited to look at some of these items, which is what is going to bring more informed questions and most more relevant questions uh, to be specific. So not so surprising, Kevin. Yeah, it's a good point, Jay. You know, I had a, we've got a question from the audience about the uh, FDA and their influx of new staff, um, mm. maybe straight from from college. Who knows? But you know, <laughs> does that factor into the micromanaged questioning um, and the more rigorous approach? Well, so I guess from an FDA perspective, I think so. The way biocomp is generally handled with FDA's kind of sounds like similar to the notified bodies where we have these set of reviewers who are like expert reviewers who have trained toxicologists or people in biocompatibility who you'd consult out those sections of the file to so they them review so if you're like a new fda person and someone submits like a whole slew of biocompatibility testing or say chemical characterization the lead reviewer generally won't be reviewing that file right mm -hmm. like they would be reviewing the general topic and being kind of like the project manager for it but they consult that out to an expert, which is kind of why I think, Jay's point, we're seeing a lot of these very, very detailed questions about the methodology. That's, mm. um, yeah, a little bit surprising. And I think there's been more focus on this. They've, I know they've hired a lot more um, biocompatibility-focused people over these last few years because it has been like a growing issue, and a lot more files have these um, biocompatibility. Like they, they identified that need for that expertise in the agency, and they have hired more. Um, which is, I guess, yeah, in line with not surprising we're receiving these very in-depth questions now for like test reports that probably would have been fine five, six mm -hmm. years ago. And, and your thoughts, Lucy, um, you know, have you got any sort of practical experience on interpretation so, by regulators? I've not been inside of VA as Kevin did, so um, I can't tell for sure. It looks like really the reviewers are maybe more junior and also my feeling again is they are checking boxes. They, for mm. each deviation or, or choice, like each time you have to select one option or another in a test, they will have, they won't, uh, they won't write by themselves why you selected that and they will have you justify every single decision you make on why you're doing a mucosal test because your device touches, uh, goes into the mouth or why do you, it, it it starts to I've, I mean I don't know I, I kind of feel like it's uh, it's a bit too much 
but maybe they need to find they need to find their balance here and um i mean we're seeing that we with the e-star right lucy like the e-star template now they they make you answer so many questions about biocompatibility that usually um like you didn't have to provide maybe as specifically in old submissions right like you, you just call it like your extraction ratios and all those questions yeah. i think you're right it's like to simplify it for the leader viewers they know like oh this spec is the important one if it's not one of these we ask questions right they're trying to like yeah. make this a little bit easier more straightforward for fda um and we've seen this also with some of the boilerplate languages for chemical characterization and i think lucy and i actually were talking about this before and we received very identical set of questions where it's like 20 something standardized questions about chemical characterization and we receive these for um pre-subs where you ask fda for feedback on like your your testing plan and they'll say okay by the way if you're going to do this here's all the considerations so it's, it's a good because it kind of guides your testing but also bad because then when you come in with your actual submission you have to address 20 plus specific points about chemical extract like chemical and uh, extractables testing so it's good and bad that you know, if, if sorry, not going to buy it, but something to keep in mind is that if you go into a pre-sub and you get this list to not be super surprised. That's a good point. Some great questions coming through, actually. Um, there's one here about, are we seeing any delays because of backup uh, at laboratories? So um, I think there was a discussion about how there's a, a three-month delay or a backup because of COVID testing taking over lab time. Just curious to know, have we experienced anything similar? This can this can be really, really variable. It really depends on what tests we're talking about. There are certain tests that are extremely long lead time, uh, whereas certain other chemical characterization tests that can be relatively shorter. Sometimes there is method development involved. Um, there's there's a lot of fine tuning depending on what you're after and you know what the method's all about. So it can be variable. Um, we haven't seen specific lab delays off late this has been a thing in the past but not so much off late but wherever we do see delays it tends to be tends to be multifactorial and there tends to be a certain degree of method development slash refinement involved for what we're going after um, there was there's one example that comes to my mind and that's not it's not it's not very new um, but one example is we were looking at um, ENL testing for for PBACs at the end of its shelf life. So there was T equals zero testing as well as um, T equals four year testing, and you know we started seeing some unusual peaks um, at at the four year time point. And this test was initially started um, in house. So then at that point, you know couldn't really figure out there weren't any library matches when it came to these unknown peaks so we had to go to an external lab there was a little bit of method development involved so overall that that resulted in an eight month uh, eight month delay so it wasn't really external lab specific it was just a multifactorial um, instance where there was additional refinement and method development by virtue of taking it from you know an internal lab to an external lab so instances like that can happen. It depends on what testing we're looking at, but we aren't really seeing any specific trends at this point associated with COVID or something. At least that's from my experience. I will add, I think maybe not delays in the lab side, but we have seen supply chain disruptions that have oh, affected companies yeah. being able to accept, being able to get mm -hmm. like the worst case sample to give mm -hmm. them to the lab. 
right? Mm. Like, like maybe it's not the lab that's delaying it, but just producing right. the worst case sample and then being able to track and do all of it to send it to the lab. We've seen delays and that can add time to the overall like biocompatibility testing plan. Yeah, and because of that, um, Kevin, this reminds me, I think manufacturers are going in with more of a rationale slash justification type approach to in order to maintain their timelines from a submission standpoint. It may just mean more questions at the back end, but yeah, that's what we're seeing. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we've definitely had a couple uh, companies who submitted at risk where they're saying, all right, maybe like, mm. we can try to do the raw material justification, manufacturing uh, additives to figure out, you know, build like you know cobble together some kind of risk-based justification and go in with that right. but at the same time like have our biocompatibility running in parallel so that when we receive the ai if we receive the ai we'd have the biocompatibility ready to go but it's like not worth waiting x amount of time until the biocompatibility is done to submit this like submission yeah yeah it, it sorry go on man yeah sorry jay i'm just this is a question that came through it's quite of interest um trends for FDA adopting biocompatibility testing for special 510k submissions. Is that something that you're seeing? Trends, sorry, so for, are they accepting like justifications for 510ks? So trends from the FDA on adopting biocompatibility testing for special 510k submissions. Is this is this asking about chem characterization versus certain biological endpoint based tests or? Um, I think it's just looking at whether there's a uh, there's an uptake in for special 510k submissions on adopting biocompatibility testing. Hmm. Well, I guess so. I, yeah, I guess maybe why I'm not following the question is that for special 510ks, they generally don't require like what makes it a 510k is that you can use a design control and summary table to address your endpoints. So if you're submitting full biocompatibility testing, you generally wouldn't. Uh, acceptable okay. for a special, which I guess is kind of confusing. Uh, yeah. Okay, there's, there's another detailed question here. Has anyone had FDA pushback on LCMS ionization mode justification, APCI versus ESI? Pushback. Oh, this is specific, but really we need the context here. I mean, is it is it because it was a large number of you know, unidentifiable peaks in there, or was it around the choice of the wrong method, or was it a choice of LCMS over HPLC? I mean, what are we talking about? Sorry, I need a little bit more context here. Yeah, we've we've asked to we've, we've asked the individual to elaborate a little more. Okay, okay, so, uh, and and you know, if we don't get to it oh, in this session, no, we can have. I think a, there's not too many peaks. I think that's what the conclusion is. There's not not too many peaks. Um, so adopting a different yeah, adopting a different style. Look, it is it is an issue, you know, where you if you are significantly relying on chem characterization to justify, say, a design change or a manufacturing change or a supplier change, and then if you are seeing a significant difference in the number of, you know, unidentified peaks, that does become an issue because it brings into question a lot of other things, especially if there is a tox assessment in play and just the sheer amount of unknowns and the interactions thereafter or thereof. So it does become an issue in that case, um, you know, you may have to pursue another method or some kind of other comparative testing to be able to still use that chem characterization data set. Again, I would still like to know more detail. Now, I'm, I'm willing to have a one-on-one -on -one call with this person who asked this question to understand the context a little bit better and to provide a more informed answer. But other than that, uh, Lucy, Kevin, if you have any comments, please. Yeah, 
Yeah, I wasn't sure. Are they asking that they have too many unknown peaks or they just didn't have enough peaks where FDA is now saying, hey, did you fully exhaustively extract all your samples? Like you should have gotten way more peaks for how many materials there are, but you're only seeing like two peaks or something, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah it could be the test. Test method, you know, yeah, it, I think there's a there's a preference from FDA that they prefer the APCI instead of the ESI, and I uh, like that. I think I saw deficiency like that. I can't remember exactly. I remember what was it about, Lucy? On on the, I remember FDA pushing back on one project on a on a question like that. Um, I'm not, yeah, possibly, I'm not a regarding... so I couldn't, I can't remember the details, but mm. um, I remember that basically, so that's a problem I think we have with FDA and chemical characterization. They have, uh, they have some, they have very strict requirements. They know what they want to see and what they don't want to see, but we don't because they did not share that with everyone. It's not, there's no guidance, there's nothing. So they have their own interpretations of the standards, which is quite prescriptive, but we don't know that before we submit it and they send back questions. So um, I don't remember exactly, but I think they wanted one method over the other one. And, uh, and the, the company was trying to justify that based on their results, based on the, the, their device, on the peaks and the methods they used, um, they used the ES, ESI, is that it? And, and FDA wanted the other one, or maybe it was the other one around. I don't remember, but I remember having a question like that. Interesting. And unfortunately, I think there is a lot of variability. I'll say like, so we usually consult out uh, an FDA to OSEL, which is the Office of Science and Engineering Laboratories. And I remember when I was there, there was one uh, SME who was like notoriously strict. <laughs> And they would ask, and it was almost to the point where we'd almost recommend the new reviewers not go to this person because they would ask for like everything and you'd have to know which ones were overly burdensome and which ones were like, right. And with new reviewers who didn't necessarily understand these topics, they would just send out everything. And these companies would be like, oh my gosh, how do I address all of these, right? And maybe that's where like the, you know, we had a question a little back earlier this presentation about like, you know, there's the new reviewers, this is an effect your questions you're getting. And I guess, in that sense, it could, because the leader viewer is still supposed to filter what you're getting from these scientists, because these scientists are so smart, but they're like very textbook, right? They like everything by the book, and this is how it should be. But a lot of regulatory is kind of gray, and there's a lot of policy involved with making these regulatory decisions. And some questions, while you know, may be acceptable, may not necessarily be in the scope of what a 510K would be asking for, or necessary, or like uh, applicable. And I think part of the job of the lead reviewer is being able to filter out and ask the right questions to the company. Very good. Yeah, so there's another question that's come through here from, from the... Well, well the here's the thing, um, Parm, on the previous previous item, I'm, I'm not sure we answered the person's question. So if, if we need to, yeah, sorry, <laughs> but if we need to have a one-on-one -on -one with some additional context, I think either one of us could be of help. So just, sure. just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Perfect. We, we can address that for sure. Yeah, the, the question that's come through is, uh, has anyone had any experience with questions on biocompatibility over the lifetime? Um, so if the device is reusable, should mm. the cleaning agents be incorporated in the testing as well? What's your I'll thought, let Lucy? Kevin go first. <laughs> yeah. 
I never had biocompatibility question over a lifetime. Usually it's addressed through sterilization, uh, validation, but um, or when you address lifetime of a device, you would address the performance, but usually the biocompatibility, unless I guess it's a degradable product, which then, it, yeah, you need to, uh, to make sure that it's still the same after the shelf life, but um, no, I never had that. For yeah, but for yeah, for reusable, I feel it's always just after the post sterilization the first time. It's not like you have to sterilize it until the product's about to die and then test biocomp on it. Well, usually when it's reusable, it's uh, steam sterilization, or it's not like you're not gonna re-sterilize it with ethylene oxide each time, right? So I guess the biocomp issue is kind of minor there. I don't know. I never had that question. So in in Europe, reprocessing is is a big thing at this point, right? It's and and it's it's not that it's new, but it's gaining a lot more steam. And uh, reviewers themselves are coming to terms with it. You can you can definitely expect questions around lifetime, but it's more from the perspective of your risk assessment having covered lifetime or or some, in some cases even life cycle related expectations. You can expect questions around. Uh, okay, you tested Biocomp or your plans comment on T equals zero. What happens at the end of four years? You know, if it's a polymer-based device or, or pretty much anything else. Um, that's not to say that they're expecting to see all of the Biocomp testing repeated at the end of shelf life. No, they're asking for an evaluation. So they want to see that considered as part of your risk assessment. When it comes to reprocessing, uh, to Lucy's point, they really want to see your cleaning uh, slash disinfection validation. They want to see your cleaning or sterilization validation. They they want to understand that whatever instructions that you provide for cleaning and or disinfection sterilization um, are something that the user can follow. So in that case, they will expect to see a usability validation from that perspective in terms of what instructions you provide. They want to see that you know, you're not recommending more of flash sterilization unless your design can withstand that and that it's more of a steady buildup because it can have an impact. They want to see all of that discussed in your risk assessment. So yes, you in from the EU, you can expect questions to that effect outside of just device performance, um, considering reprocessing, but the focus is mainly on your validations associated with cleaning, disinfection, and sterilization, assuming that you've covered all of the performance-related items in your other DB testing. Yeah, that yeah. is something that you, you will get questions on. And also don't forget the usability aspect of the instructions in your IFU, and there needs to be a validation for that as well, yeah. Yeah, I've got a question on a similar theme, actually, Jay. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, what testing do you recommend to confirm that a suspected cleaning operation doesn't leave the part of uh, a significant contamination? So, for example, cleaning of mold release or stainless steel, solder flux, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is typical. Um, it really depends. Again, what testing would you expect? It really depends on what the device is about. It could be something as simple as, you know, you do you do your gravimetric assay, like you do your NVR followed by FTIR, but it, it can be non-specific and not really recommended for a very high-risk device. But the methodology would be the same. You'd start off with a risk assessment, which starts with a material characterization, understanding of what all are the components involved, what are our 
what all are the you know cleaning agents or surfactants, antioxidants, photostabilizers, whatever it may be, right? All of your processing aids, make a listing of all of that, which is material characterization. Do a risk assessment because think about, and when you attend, you know, tackle something like this, think about it from this perspective. What are we after? What do the regulators want to see? They want to understand what are the residues, they want to understand the, the extractables and the impurities of concern, right? That's step one. Then they want to understand what are the permissible levels of these substances or analytes. And then lastly, they want to understand, could there be unacceptable risk to the patient, right? This is what goes into your risk assessment and this guides the testing that you need to do. Now, thereafter, um, depending on what you expect to see, for example, if you know uh, you may be expecting metallic residues, okay, in that case, you do your ICP, you may be expecting uh, semi-VOCs, um, in, in you know in which case you may do some kind of GCMS or you you may be expecting non-VOCs LC right so depending on what you expect to see will actually guide choice of your chemical characterization method right I know this is a high level answer uh, but it really depends on what you expect to see and followed by you know your exhaustive extraction depending on what you, the risk level of your devices followed by choice of appropriate test method. And it doesn't really end there. Like I said, you are getting questions around AT and so on and so forth, but that's that's more delving into the specifics following um, you know, some of these basic risk assessment related items. Yeah, they once again, once again, again, context is everything in pretty much every one of these questions. I am giving a high level response, but I, you know, I remain open to a one-on-one -on -one to discuss specifics here because my guess is behind this question is a lot of context and I can't do justice to that in a two-minute um, piece of commentary, right? The, the devil's in the details. You could have questions around why did you choose a certain AAT? Were you able to meet that? What was the LOQ of your device? Uh, why did you choose a certain, um, you know, TTC? Was it 1.5? Why, you know, or 120, why did you choose 120? What uncertainty factor did you use in case it comes to that level of assessment? So please know that we remain open to having a more detailed conversation. Good. Well, in general, I guess, Jay and, and team, um, you know, how, how are we advising our clients with legacy devices and their approach? I presume this is for MDR. Um, okay. Typically, I would have started this answer with, you know, Standards have changed over time. It's likely that your biocom testing is pre-2008. Standards have changed, especially the 10993 suite. Start with a gap assessment. Yes, that still holds good, but I'd say take a further step back. Start with assessing what changes have been made to your device from the time you did the biocom testing or whenever you did your initial chem characterization testing that you're hoping to leverage for MDR submission. Start with a list of changes not just from a design standpoint, of course, from a design standpoint, but you you, you also take into account you know, manufacturing changes, manufacturing location changes, any sterilization method changes, um, any usability related changes that you may have made. Uh, and then last but not least, do not forget any supplier changes that you've made. Once you have this entire suite of changes, then go into you know, then go into your gap assessment in order to say, okay, now I've made all these changes. How does that factor into my gap assessment? And then, you know, collectively analyze the impact on, on all these standards that have changed. Very often for legacy devices, there may have been significant changes. You know, devices may have been acquired from over time. Uh, you may have to repeat some of your testing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of time and money commitment. 
but also know that as part of the MDR, you have a very limited round of questions, right? Don't leave things to chance because it may take the notified body a year to get your submission and another 18 months to review your submission. You may be two years down the line before you know that you're in round three questions staring at a showstopper item that could have been mitigated by some fresh testing. So do take into account all of these items before you decide which way to go, whether to leverage using certain aspects of 10993-1, uh, which would almost always make it a medium to high risk approach, or um, should you be repeating testing? Again, like I said, going back to my first comment, start with a list of changes that you've made covering all aspects other than just design by itself, and then proceed into a gap assessment and then make an informed decision um, and include that documentation, include that justification as part of your documentation and your technical documentation for saying why you leverage something that was, you know, 15 years old. That's that would be a start. Very good. There's a question here for the FDA uh, team here. So, you know, how, how do you use exemptions for intact skin devices made of <laughs> common materials? Do you want to take that, Kevin? Sure. So, I guess the first thing. I would like to point out is that the guidance that I think they're referring to is still in draft, so it may change. But essentially, the intent of the guidance is that FDA has recognized certain materials to be considered low risk when it comes into contact with intact skin. And because of this, like long history of use of this device of these materials, FDA is very comfortable with like the literature and MDRs that you don't necessarily have to provide uh, testing anymore if these materials are only meant to be used on intact skin. And FDA kind of is relying more on the company's quality systems and their um, risk management to kind of address some of these risks instead of in lieu of giving full biocompatibility testing to FDA. So what this guidance says is that uh, if you meet the list that they provided, um, and there are some exemptions that FDA says, like if you are meant to be like reprocessed, for example, then like it doesn't apply. Um, but if you have a device that's manufactured from one of the materials on the list, uh, you don't meet any of the exemptions that disqualify you from the applicability of this guidance document. You don't need to provide testing, but instead you just need to provide these several statements that say, um, they're almost like declaration of conformity statements, I feel, where it just says like, you, you know, your, your material is, uh, has a long history of safe use. You're not aware of any like adverse events. You're, you manage your risk through your quality systems, like through your purchasing controls, your complaint files, your medical device reporting. And then you should be good to go, right? Which is a lot better than having to give any kind of testing or other justifications to FDA. Yeah, so the thing I would like to add is, this is a draft guidance. And mm. uh, we've seen some FDA reviewers accepting this justification and others saying just, well, it's a draft guidance. I don't have to, it's not approved yet. So I won't listen to that. I want the testing. So, you you can try <laughs> it doesn't yeah but it might not work and also another thing is most of the materials in these guidance are um, plastics polymers of all sorts and one of the exemptions is uh, the uh, addition of color additives so i would mm. say be very careful when you choose whether or not you want to add colorants to your device because this might make you have to do testing while you could avoid it. So it's another reason why you're not adding colorants. <laughs> colorants are just such a touchy topic. You know, just, just wanted to expand on that colorant comment. 
I've had situations where uh, manufacturer chose to changing colorants is a different story, but reduce the the volume of colorants, saying, "Oh, this you know we've already tested the worst case, so we think this one is okay." That doesn't really always fly because FDA is concerned about interactions and the worst case from your perspective, simply in terms of volume or percentage, may not really cut it when it comes to changes. Colorance is just such such a minefield. Interesting. Wait, Steve, so you're saying that if you reduce the um, volume of a colorant, mm. FDA still asked for additional yes. testing? Like it's not included yeah, already? Don't, they don't accept that it's the worst case because in their mind, it may be a worst case in terms of input, but the type of interactions that it causes and when it comes to extractables and leachables, the solubility, the impact of solubility on some of the other components in the device may not be the same as you know uh, for you know what you had initially considered worst case. I know it's a slightly warped thought process, but it's not inconceivable. But we run up against that on more than a couple of occasions. <laughs> oh wow, that's really interesting. Yep. And uh, differences between physical and/or chemical information versus chemical characterization. There's a question around around that. I just need to know what what your thoughts are on that, uh, Jay. Maybe you wanna sort of answer that, that one. Okay, from from the MDR perspective. Mm. From the MDR perspective, yeah. Okay, well. Let me start with, I'll come to the physical chemical bit. There is a fundamental difference between material characterization and chemical characterization, right? Material characterization tends to be more higher level um, and manufacturers often confuse this. So do not confuse material characterization for chem characterization. Material characterization is simply identifying all of the components, uh, including your manufacturing and cleaning aids, just identifying it and you know feeding that into your risk assessment and so on and so forth. Chem characterization takes on a lot more involved form, right? It is basically to the extent of your extractables and leachables, that is ENL testing, and where applicable, you may need a toxicological risk assessment. So there are different items. Physical characterization, you know, your tensile testing, viscosity testing, um, characterizing energy levels, and so on and so forth. Look at GSPR 10, to be specific, I think it's GSPR 10.1. It talks of a lot of physical chemical items when it comes to these characterization related terms. So you'll find a lot of terms that are specified in there, GSPR 10.1. And then GSPR 10 in general talks about, you know, this guidance on, not guidance, there's requirements around phthalates, uh, CMR, endocrine disruptor substances, all of which will require us, you know, an involved degree of chem characterization and not just physical characterization or material characterization. So GSPR 10, um, GSPR 10 talks about these requirements and also the need for chemical characterization, which I think is an Annex 2 6.1b second indent. Between these two, you should be covered in terms of what needs to be looked at. And for the FDA, so I don't know if physical characterization is defined the same way, but we did have a recent question where we had a device uh, instruments where the raw materials manufacturing process are identical. And we said, mm -hmm. all right, we're good to go. And FDA pushed back saying, wait, you didn't consider the physical characteristics because if you're larger, you could have more surface areas, could be worst case, or if you're sure. more complex geometries, could be more challenging for cleaning and sterilization that you need to evaluate this. Um, yeah, so FDA, sure. yeah. I mean, it's not different, Kevin. It's not different. I mean, the GSPR I was meant, I was referring to 10.1 talks about tensile properties and, you know, so on and so forth. So now it's, it's along the same lines, yeah. Very good. 
Um, there was a question here on, you know, what do you do if you have a large number of unknowns in chemical characterization? Simple, you're stuck. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll let some of the others take it, but that is a problem. Yeah, I don't know, get a toxicologist. I mean, I would say I the I like I, I haven't had that many NSCs in the government in the, in the, when I was in the agency and a large majority was related to this where companies have gone through chemical characterization had a whole bunch of unknown peaks, didn't know what they were, we didn't know what they were, they couldn't tell us and we couldn't clear the file. So Yeah, yeah I mean and you make an interesting comment there uh, about toxicologists do you need expertise when actually interpreting chemical characterization data? Depends to what extent you need to push the chem characterization, right? Um, do you have materials that are in the cohort of concern or what it is? And especially when it comes to your calculation of margin of safety and so on, you definitely need a toxicologist. Reviewers will be looking for whoever has um, you know, reviewed and evaluated the report and you will most likely get questions on that. I don't think anybody without toxicologist credentials will be comfortable doing that anyway. So yes, depending on the extent to which chem characterization needs to be carried out. Yeah. Say, especially for some of our devices that have novel materials, I think it's almost been like almost invaluable to have some of these toxicologists on the teams to help us get through this part with these materials that FDA hasn't seen before or there are unknown risks associated with some of these. Yeah. And what about devices that are compatible with chemical characterization? Example, uh, particulates or collagen. What, what's your thoughts on that? Oh man, that's it really, when it comes to something like collagen, it really depends. Is it processed or not? What type of collagen are we talking about? Secondly, I'm not sure I understand the question because I'm not sure why collagen wouldn't be subject to chemical characterization. You can you can extract it accordingly. There, are, you know, you have a host of solvents to be extracting it in. Uh, I'm not sure why would it render itself incompatible to chem characterization. Again, I think context is everything here. I need to understand a little bit more about the device. But if it's just a collagen-based device, um, what is it cross-linked or not? How is it processed? Is it only collagen, or is collagen just a part of it? It can. You can extract collagen. Um, there's probably more to it. Lucy, any thoughts on that? Uh, not really. I would say in terms of what is extractable or not, um, you need to be very careful. Any any kind of device you have, you need to be very careful on the choice of the solvents. Sure. And that's another reason to talk to, the to to a toxicologist when you need to justify those choices or at least to the test lab. Um, because we had a lot of questions, like silicon products which would dissolve in a non-porous solvent, and FDA would ask for more trials with other solvents, so we would provide more images with more solvents, and then FDA would ask even more, and, and at some point, someone needs to stop. <laughs> So we don't know where, how far we need to go to kind of demonstrate that, well, it dissolves. So we will find tons of peaks because we will find small pieces of silicone in, in the extract anyway. So this, this might be, yeah, I don't know. Okay, very good. Well, look, we've got a question from a, a notified body that's just come through. Mm -hmm. uh, do the manufacturers need to provide any evidence of the Colbert Chrome device 
whether the cancer and death cases reported in the PMS are not related to cobalt content. In oh my products. God, yeah, CMR 1A, 1B substances. We're advising, uh, thank you for that question. Uh, by the way, you should be the one telling manufacturers to do it. <laughs> but but uh, honestly, it's a valid question, and I'm 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 glad this question came up because for whoever is listening, you will need say for example, if it's a stent that has a certain degree of stainless steel, if the stainless steel is you know 304 versus 316, 304 has a lot more cobalt in there. You're talking about CMR 1A 1B substances, and as a manufacturer across your product portfolio, you need a strategy. And the strategy could be something, uh, could could be, you know, you, you pick out your worst case device. Again, it has ramifications from a labeling perspective as well. So it's not just your technical documentation, your labeling gets, gets impacted as well. You need to have a strategy around CMR 1A, 1B substances. It will involve um, extensive chem characterization and it's absolutely unavoidable when it comes to the MDR. You will definitely get questions, and trust me, this will be a showstopper item at round three if it's not fulfilled. But do you have to do it on every single device? My experience at the Notified Body has been, and certain large manufacturers have done this, where they come in with the strategy, and again, Notified Body can't say yes or no, but they can look at your strategy, right? The strategy is involved within a given family of products or even a portfolio of products, choose your worst case, justify why that is the worst case, right? And then focus all your testing on that for your CMR substances. But just know that whatever you find on that will have an impact on the labeling for all of the other substances that you're choosing to use this as a worst case for, right? So you definitely do need a strategy around it. Um, you know, CMR ED substances, it, it's called out in the regulations. So thank you for that question. Uh, manufacturers definitely need, do need a strategy based on chem characterization for the same. Yeah, because it has an impact on your labeling as well. So. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a question that did come actually through about uh, EU MD, EU MDR Annex 1 labeling requirements from Cobalt. Cobalt. There you go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and uh, that's great. Well, I think we've maxed our time. And, uh, you know, I want to say thank you to everyone today and the, and the guests that have uh, entered their questions through. But, um, yeah i'll leave it up to you stephen to close please thanks parm uh, yeah thanks to each and every one of you for joining us today we really appreciate it a uh, special shout out to our first timers lucy and parm uh thanks for contributing everyone will be emailed a recording of this session by tomorrow uh, we'll also be publishing this to our device advice podcast by early next week so please subscribe uh, to that if you listen to podcasts and haven't yet subscribed. Uh, there are two major virtual events we want to make sure you know about, both of which you can register for at our Knowledge Center at rqmplus.com. The first is our second webinar of the year. Uh, it's on April 26th, an intuitive approach to quantifying the benefit-risk ratio. Uh, Jay Cuddy from today's panel, you heard from him a lot today, will be one of the two one of two presenters on that one. Uh, that's going to be a highly detailed, in-depth presentation. If you have any interest at all in that topic, we encourage you to register. And always remember that if you can't attend uh, these sh live shows or a webinar or something like that live, um, please register anyway if you're interested in the topic because you'll be notified when the recording is available and you can download the slides afterwards. Uh, the other event is our RQM Plus live show that'll be on the 21st of April. Uh, like today, that one will be a sequel to a previous show. It'll be all about PSURs, um, and the previous show was the most attendance we've ever had on this topic, so we're really looking forward to coming back and discussing it more. Uh, please bring your questions. Uh, once more, you can find all of these in the Knowledge Center at rqmplus.com. So that's all for today. We hope to see you at one of these events that I mentioned uh, soon, and have an excellent rest of your week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Cheers.
Bye now. Bye.